And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. <laughs> I'm Sarah, and we have a guest today named Chica. Yeah. Um, who uh, really wants to be right where the recorder sits. Yep. On the couch. Oh, Chica. If you lie down, like, I'll be cool with it. You just have to not be moving. You want to come over here? Good girl. We're dog-sitting uh, for some friends of ours. So we have this little dog in the house. The wizened hound. She's not a hound. But, like, she's wise and old. Okay. Yeah, she, she's great. Um, Hey, if our landlord's listening, we don't have a dog here at all yeah this isn't you can't use this in court um (laughs) this isn't evidence don't please don't um yeah so if you hear some noises like dogly noises just deal how are you doing today sarah (laughs) good um it's not directly after halloween um but i still do feel a bit of that spook hangover as it were yeah i'm very tired it was a very busy month for us. If you've headed over to patreon.com slash podcast, you would have seen that we were putting up music all throughout the month of October, available to patrons of any level, as well as short stories that I wrote. Sorry, the music's by Sarah. The short stories are by me. We had new music and fiction going up right until Halloween itself. And the last story you wrote was really good. Oh, thank you. It was you. like this um, crossover of... Frankenstein's monster meeting Dracula. Which, like, has been done a million times and, like, has, you know, we've seen it before, but this is the, like, Mary Shelley's novel version of the creature and, like, Bram Stoker's novel version of Dracula. And I feel like I've never seen the literary versions of both characters meet. Um, And I was trying to really write it in, like, sort of a faux 19th century style. Yeah, it's like a collection of letters. It's great. So, yeah, we were releasing stuff right up till Halloween. And then, uh, as I'm sure you all know by now, we released two episodes on Halloween in a double creature feature. So, I'm just... What I'm trying to say, listeners, is I'm just very tired. (laughs) I'm very tired. I'm a little bit sick. So, like, Sarah's talking about she has, like, a spook hangover, whatever that means. I'm just very tired. I'm just very tired. Now, what might be confusing to people, given that... This episode is another continuity insert. That's right. Yeah, um, so... Mm-hmm. So in terms of release order, you would have just heard episode 84 featuring the man-made monster and Lon Chaney Jr., but what would they have just watched if they just watched episode 47? Yeah, so if you're listening to the episodes in numerical order, chronological order of the films, you would have just heard the episode on Sex Maniac. So today... Uh, we are watching basically like the next movie in our continuing retrospective on the early days of Mexican horror films, uh, because we are watching Dos Monjes from 1934. Okay, and... Dos Monjes. It's probably Dos Monjes. That's how you say two, is Dos, not Dos. Dos is an operating system. (laughs) It's not super relevant because we're in Mexico, but where does this film sit in relation to the Hollywood production code. The code is a thing now, and horror isn't. Like, uh, (laughs) we're in that no-man's land where, like, no one was making horror at all. The next horror film that'll be released in America will be Bride of Frankenstein in 1935. So the code is a thing, and no one has any idea how to make horror under the code yet. Um, But we're in Mexico, so. Not really in effect here. Like, even, like, you know, cultural influence, not even a thing. Yeah. So, like our recent continuity insert on El Fantasma del Convento, we basically are watching this movie now because we just couldn't get a copy until recently. And just like with El Fantasma, uh, there is one now on YouTube, and it is once again time for us to dive into the world of 
auto-generated, auto-translated subtitles. We've done it before. We'll do it again. Mm-hmm. Dos Monjes is written and directed by one of the co-writers of El Fantasma del Convento. Sort of like how El Fantasma was written and directed by one of the co-writers of La Llorona. Uh, so in this case, the writer-director of the film is Juan Bastillo Oro, who co-wrote Dos Monjes with Jose Manuel Cordero. Bastillo Oro was born in 1904 in Mexico City. His first feature film was Yo Soy Tu Padre, which he wrote and directed. Dos Monjes was his fifth feature film credit as a writer and his third credit as a director. He had trained in law before becoming involved in theater and then in film. <laughs> the transition between theater and film makes sense to me. But with law? I mean, to me it always makes sense as, like, you go to school to get that, like, education, to get that real-world job, and then, like, the second your parents are looking the other direction, you switch over to film. <laughs> I mean, I guess um, the talent of being an orator, hmm. it, it, it translates. Bastillo Oro had a long career, directing and writing over 60 films over the course of 38 years. And while he worked in many genres, he differed from his contemporary Fernando de Fuentes in that he maintained an interest in horror after these early experiments. In our El Fantasma episode, we talked about how Fuentes was this, you know, great director of Mexican cinema, but he really only made the one horror film. Whereas Bastillo Oro continued to make horror films um, in the 1950s. So those, along with El Fantasma and Dos Monjes, have earned Oro the title of the father of Mexican horror cinema. Cool. I presume we'll be watching those mm -hmm. later horror movies when we get to the 50s. Yeah. So Dos Monjes, uh, which means two monks, as you might guess from that title, continues the Catholic themes of El Fantasma del Convento, and it also continues the expressionist styling of the cinematography, which in this film was done by Agustin Jimenez. Just for my brain, when um, what would what did we consider the last German expressionist film? Like not necessarily from Germany, because that would be. Um, I'm having a hard time remembering. I know we picked up like wafts of expressionist flavor in Fireman Maria. Yeah. And certainly the sound remake of Unheimliche Geschichten still had some expressionist elements in it. Those, those would be around early 1930s, right? That's right. You're trying to think of, like, what the last, like, true, like, silent expressionist film we would have looked at was? I'm just curious what films could possibly be influencing these directors. Like, uh, what films' versions of expressionism? Yeah, I mean, definitely anything from the 20s, you know, for one thing, right? Like your standard, you know, Nosferatu's and Cabinet of Caligari's and Orlok's Handa's and, you know, all that, Alrauna's, whatever. This is 1934, you know, so we're into the prime of the American first horror boom, of course, you know, and yeah, I mean, really, 1934, we're at traditionally, like, what is the end of Expressionism? Because the Nazis in Germany, you know, what they're, what Expressionism they're influenced by is all of it. Probably. Sure. Okay. Um, another connection to the earlier film is actor Carlos Viatoro, who plays the role of Javier here. Uh, he was Eduardo in El Fantasma del Convento. The one that was married yes. to Cristina. That's right. Okay. Dos Monjes was released on November 28th, 1934 in Mexico, and on January 20th, 1935 in the United States. It was not initially well-received. Um, the expressionist style, uh, the artificiality of it, um, these were highly criticized as being, like, out of date, like, old-fashioned. In the States, yeah. Um, and even, like, Mexican critics highly criticized this. Oh, really? Okay. Um, you might remember, like, the acting styles in El Fantasma also were, like, almost like silent movie-style acting, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that was highly criticized in Mexico um, was the horror themes. 
one of the things you might remember about this period, you know, after the code is this is the period of like the strongest backlash against horror, right? And that wasn't just happening in America, that was happening everywhere. That was part of why, you know, after 36, everyone just stopped making horror movies because the backlash was worldwide, right? Yeah. Um, and that's, we were kind of starting to see that around this period. Um, and that certainly happened with this film. People just didn't want horror movies at this time. But Phantasma was the same year and was, like, very well received. Yeah, it's just one of those things where, like, that's, you know, the tastes shift, right? It's it's as simple as that. Yeah. Everyone goes wild for Sin City, and then two months later, everyone is fucking sick of Sin City. You know what I mean? <laughs> At least that's how I felt when that movie came out. <laughs> Everyone, like, I remember when that Sin City movie came out, and, like, I was in, like, film studies classes, and everyone was like, oh, this is the new future of cinema. Like, look how stylish this was. Look at the amazing, like, how they were able to get this, like, amazing appearance, and look how this movie was made, and blah, 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 blah. And then it was like, yeah, two months later, no one wanted to see that shit ever again. Look at this new modern take on cinema as Sin City takes all of its, like, look from 1940s film noir. Well, I think, I think it was the, like production methodology of, like, how they got that look and that sure. movie, but yeah. So, in recent years, Dos Monjes has undergone a critical reappraisal, and today it is actually considered a classic of Mexican cinema. Uh, it has been recently restored, and in 2017, the restoration was shown at film festivals, as well as at uh, art galleries and museum events, uh, to much critical fanfare. Uh, hopefully, this will lead to a high-quality home video release. Uh, even better if that release gets available in English-speaking territories. Uh, but at the moment, that restoration is not just sort of widely available. So we are we are not watching that. We're watching what was available before that. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're in auto-translated YouTube territory again with this one. But that does mean it's on the Scream Scene playlist. So that's great. People can watch along. They can discover alongside with us just how good of a horror movie this is. Mm -hmm. So folks, if you would like to watch along, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. I never realized that that rhymes. Huh. You're going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss Dos Monjes from 1934, directed by... Juan Bastillo Oro. See you on the other side, everybody. Scream scene. We just finished watching Dos Monjes from 1934, directed by Juan Basilio Oro. What did you think, Ben? Well, I'm glad we watched this movie because we know that, you know, Juan Basilio Oro is going to go on to make other Mexican horror movies in the future. It also provided a really interesting contrast with El Fasma del Convento, which it shares a lot of basic themes with. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly very expressionist, yeah. Uh, but uh, we got fooled again, Sarah, because this one ain't horror. It isn't? I did not think it is. I did not think it was. Okay, maybe we can discuss that. Okay. Just a little bit, you know, talk about what it is if it is not horror. Okay. How about you tell us a little bit about what it's about? Sure. So, as you might surmise from the movie being called Two Monks, we begin in a monastery. And the monks are praying because one of their order is, like, babbling and, like, seems to be having, like, fits and, like, is not very healthy and they're reacting as if he's, like, got Satan in him and it has to be drawn out. This movie is set in the past. I want to say the 19th century, but my knowledge of, like, Spanish, like, fashion history wasn't good enough to, like, pinpoint it. Um, but I think 19th century. And so the prior of the monastery sends one of the monks, uh, Brother Juan, 
to check on this ill monk. Uh, he's really, he's just, like, very sick. Uh, he's, like, hallucinating, and he's uh, feverish, and this kind of thing. And so he sends Brother Juan to check up on him, and when he does, the feverish sick monk recognizes Brother Juan. Uh, this feverish monk's name is Brother Javier. And Javier recognizes Juan and attacks him uh, and, like, basically pulls, like, a big, like, crucifix down off the wall and, like, bludgeons him upside the head with it. And um, this movie's very stylized. There's a lot of heavy contrast in the cinematography. The sets show a very strong German Expressionist design. There's also a lot of weird editing. Um, not, like, bad, but, like, clearly the filmmakers are just making choices, and those choices aren't the kind of things that you're normally used to. For example, when Javier beats up Juan, like, the sound cuts out. Like, there's no thwomp, like, sound effect at all. It just kind of all goes silent. And it's all shots that are either from one of the two monks, like, direct POVs. Um, it, it certainly makes you sit up and pay attention. So, the monks take the now bleeding Juan away. And I think Javier doesn't know Juan survived. Yeah, so the prior comes to see Javier, and Javier is basically like, hey, prior, I'm gonna die. Like, I'm deathly ill. Like, I'm not possessed by Satan or anything. I'm just gonna die. Um, can you please, like, absolve me of my sins before I died? And the prior's like, you did just beat up a dude, like, with a crucifix. <laughs> um, so if you want... In the scale of, like, sins, that's yeah. probably right near the top. Yeah, that's some, that's some blasphemy. Um, if you want, like, absolution for this, you need to go and seek forgiveness from Brother Juan. And Javi's like, nah, see, that's not going to happen. Because, like, he's my enemy. And, like, God has, like, led me to this place at this time so I can, like, kill him. Uh, I have hunted the earth for this man kind of thing. <laughs> and the prior's like, okay, that's... You're going to have to explain yourself. So we, we flash back. And so the story is that Javier is a musician, and he lives across the street from a young girl named Anita, and he plays beautiful romantic music on his piano, and she listens to it from across the street, and he clearly has a big crush on her, but her parents seem to have other ideas because a suitor comes to her house one day, but she does not care for this suitor, and so her parents decide they don't care for her and kick her out of the house, and so... Which is a great response. I presume the, like, context has to be that, like, that suitor was, like, super wealthy or something and that, like, that was gonna, like, move the family up the like, social pecking order. I'm not defending their actions. I'm trying to, like, contextualize them. So they kick her out. They disown her. So Javier and his mother, who he lives with, take Anita in. And then we get some montage showing us how, like, over the time of staying with Javier, uh, they, you know, fall in love and get together and they're going to get engaged. Javier has this friend, Juan, uh, his best friend, uh, who is, in fact, the Juan that uh, Javier beat upside the head with a crucifix. Juan has been gone for a few years. Doing the travel thing? I mean, yeah, like, he's he went on adventures in strange, like, faraway places to seek his fortune. Uh, and now he's back, and he's rich. And he wants to use his money to, like, support Javier's music and this kind of thing. And Javier's like, oh... Like, let me introduce you to, like, my fiancé. Like, this is Anita. Anita Juan. Juan Anita. And everyone gets along very well. They spend a lot of time together. Everything's going swimmingly. It's sort of, like, late fall, and Javier's like, I'm afraid of winter coming, because I have, like, I think it's supposed to be tuberculosis. I have unhealth. I have a bad cough. <laughs> I'm in a movie set in the past, and I have a bad cough, I'm going to die. Yeah, uh, and I'm afraid I'm not going to make it through winter. You know, but he says to Anita, like, if I could just have, like, one spring, like, with you, like, it would all be, I, I wouldn't even mind dying, like, as long as, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. 
So, Javier gets very sick, uh, ends up, you know, he's in bed, there's a doctor uh, looking over him, and the doctor, you know, is, is giving his prognosis, and Juan's like, shouldn't he go away to some, like, better climate to get better, which was like a pretty typical, like, 19th century, like, prescription for, like, ailments was, like, go live by the sea or something like that. And the doctor's like, no, 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 that's, that's totally not necessary. Uh, he's fine. He's going to be fine. He says to Javier, like, you're going to live to see your children. Like, don't worry about it. Soon after that, Javier's gotten a bit better. He's back at home. Uh, he's still kind of sick, though. And Juan's like, hey, I'm going away for a while again, you know, on another crazy Scrooge McDuck adventure. Well, since Javier was sick, Juan's been very, very distant. Yes, uh, that's true. Um, Javi's been having a hard time, like, getting to see Juan. Juan's been a bit evasive. Uh, but finally, he does come to Javi and say, like, hey, I'm planning this big trip, and I need you to go to my lawyer's uh, to look over some paperwork because I have other, like, urgent stuff to take care of. Like, he's got to go down to, you know, like, the airport and, like, book his hotel rooms and, like, get his tickets and stuff and make sure his passport's up to date and these things. Can you go to my lawyer's office and, like, look over some papers? And uh, at this specific time, and definitely don't leave until I meet you at his office. And Javi's like, yeah, for sure, bud. Whatever. And Javier and his mother go because his mom's like, hey, you're, like, sickly and shit, so maybe don't go by yourself. So they go together to the lawyer's. Now, uh, a little bit earlier, and I did miss this, when Javier was getting, like, you know, when Juan was being evasive and Javier was having a hard time getting in touch with Juan, you know, he talked to his mom about this. His mom was like, yeah, you know, it is weird how much time Juan has been spending with Anita. And Javier's like, what do you mean by that? And his mom's like, what do you think I mean by that? And, you know, they just kind of leave it there. So they go to the lawyer's place, and... Javier's coughing up his lungs on the paperwork, and his mom's like, yeah, go home. And the lawyer's like, yeah, go home. Like, your mother can stay here and finish the rest of this, and I'll walk her home. Like, don't worry about it. So Javier goes home, and oh shit, like Juan's hat and cloak and cane are like at the front door, you know, entryway. And Javier's like, what the fuck? And like, sure enough, he finds Juan and Anita, and Juan seems to be like forcing himself on Anita, and she doesn't want it or anything, so, like, Javi's like, what the fuck, and he, like, grabs a cane, and he goes, and he hits Juan upside the head, seems to be his standard go-to <laughs> move, and uh, Juan pushes Anita away from him, and then pulls out a gun, and then Anita runs in front of Javier, and Juan fires, because he thinks he's firing at Javier, but he's actually shot Anita, and she's dead, and Javi's like, no, and then, like, Juan disappears into the night, end flashback, and, you know, Javier's like, yeah, you know, I lost everything, like, my mother died soon after that, and, like, I didn't have any money, and, you know, I searched for one for ages, and finally I, I just, you know, gave up and decided that if I was gonna die of this, you know, 19th century disease I have, you know, I'll live out my last days in a monastery. And the prior's like, hmm, hmm, okay, interesting, yeah, okay, hmm. And then he goes to see Juan, and is like, hey, so is any of this true? And Juan's like, yes, but... but. And we get Juan's version of the story. Um, and at this moment, you're kind of thinking like, oh, it's like Rashomon. This is Rashomon. Um, it's not quite. So the deal with Rashomon is you get the same story over and over again, but it's different every time. Like, completely different. Like, contradictory. Nothing in Juan's story contradicts Javier's. It's just that Juan's got the rationales and the context for why he acted the way he did. And it's really interestingly done. Like, we see certain scenes, like, straight up again, um, sort of shot from different angles. And it, they're, they're different versions of the scenes because there's a, a very unique, like, visual difference, which is when Javier was telling the story, Javier always is dressed in, like, a white suit and Juan is in a black suit. And in Juan's version, Juan's always wearing the white suit, and Javier's always wearing the black suit. Yeah, it was a neat detail. Yeah. So, turns out, uh, Juan and Anita actually already knew each other. 
they were already in love and had like promised each other that they would get married to each other once Juan came back from being a traveling adventurer, basically. And then he was gone for two years and didn't talk to anyone. So Anita's parents were like, hey, you should get married to, hey, we found you like a nice rich guy to get married to. And Anita rejected that suitor because she had promised herself to Juan. However, in living with Javier, it sort of became clear that Javier's love for Anita was the only thing kind of keeping him going, keeping him alive. So she's kind of felt like obligated to kind of be Javier's like girlfriend slash fiance so that Javier has something to live for. Mm -hmm. And so coming back from his travels, like Juan meets Anita and gets a moment to like talk to her alone to find out like why she's Javier's fiance and kind of learns this. And they're like, you know, that, okay, I guess we have to, you know, you have to stay with Javier for his sake. Then when Javier gets sick that winter, they're kind of on the wavelength of like, okay, stay with him until he dies of whatever is killing him. And then we can get together. And, you know, this explains why Juan decided he had to go away suddenly. Because basically what happens is Juan comes to the conclusion that he just, like, can't resist the temptation to be with Anita and, like, break his friend's heart. So he's just going to go away so that he's out of the picture until uh, Javier dies and then he can come back and be with Anita. They feel pretty confident about this plan of waiting till Javier dies because after the doctor was like, yeah, you'll live to see your children. He turns to Anita and Juan and says, actually, he, he doesn't have a lot of time, so just, just make it as sweet as possible. You know, make, make his last few days good. He actually goes out of his way to, like, basically say, like, any, like, horrible bad thing that he sees will simply make him die quicker. Like, yeah. a weird way to, like, work in, like, yeah, if he found out about you two, like, he, it would be bad for him. Like, the same, it, he, like, Javier's got the same disease that, like, Aunt May had in all those old Spider-Man comics where, like, if she found out I was Spider-Man, it would kill her from the shock. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is also, I think, why the doctor tells Javier, like, hey, don't, like, don't worry about going to another climate to get better. Like, in the doctor's mind, it's like, you're going to be dead in a week, my dude. Like, don't worry about it. Yeah. So at one point when they're sort of making these behind-the-scenes plans, Javier's mom comes in and hears them. And so this is why she kind of knew something was going on, but they kind of come to this agreement. Like, she's like, yeah, like, keep this up until he dies, right? Like, that's the three-way agreement that they've all kind of got going on. But... Juan kind of gets... Needs to see her before he leaves. Yeah, I need, I need to see you one last time. So that's why he sends Javier off on this, like, whatever errand that doesn't really matter. But, of course, Javier comes back too soon. And the scene that he was breaking up between Juan and Anna in Juan's version sort of plays like him being like, I, I, I just want one last kiss before I leave. And Anna being like, yeah, like, I want to too, but I'm afraid that if I did, like, we just, things would escalate very quickly and we wouldn't be able to go through with this, like, separation plan. And he's like, oh, but I must. And she's like, no, we can't. And that's kind of the, like, he's forcing himself on her thing that Javier, you know, walks in on. And then, you know, same events occur. Anita gets shot. And Juan is, like, basically just books it and disappears, and he's like, I need penance for my sins, so that's why he went to go live in a monastery. So, now we're back in the present. The prior goes to go check up on Javier, to be like, I double-checked your story, whatever, mm -hmm. but Javier isn't there. He's gone a little more crazy on the organ. Yeah, he's at the, like, monastery's organ, just, like, pounding it out. Um, I think it's supposed to be, like, his music from before, but man, when you play stuff on a church organ, it definitely, like, just takes on a whole a different feel. A little sinister. Feel. Yeah, this starts to go into, like, some family opera kind of feels, you know? <laughs> uh, so all the monks in the monastery kind of get drawn to this, because they're like, hey, that's not Ave Maria, and, um, they show up, and yeah, Javier, like, he's so near death, he's so feverish that he's just in full, like hallucinatory town and when he sees the monks approaching him he sees them like all is like these dudes wearing like these big masked like like masks like the masks look like big stylized versions of their heads like 
like as if the monks have like big head mode from Goldeneye 64 turned yeah, on. Yeah. Um, and they all have a crucifix, like a big giant crucifix to like beat Javier over the head with, like the same thing that he hit Juan with. And they're all, you know, coming at him and coming at him or whatever. And then Juan comes in, and at this point, Javier's done his hallucinations. And Juan goes on his knees to be like, oh, please, like, I forgive you. Please forgive me. And Javier gets up and walks towards him. But before he can get there and we see, you know, does he forgive him? Is he going to choke him out? He falls over dead. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. So if this isn't horror to you, what is it? Well, it's, it's definitely expressionism. Right, totally. like a hundred percent. But for me, the only part of this movie that really get like, honestly, like this movie is just drama. This is just a soap opera. Like, like, like plot. Like, if you just write the plot down, right? This is soap opera. This is melodrama. This is, you know, the same kind of like. I mean, it's funny because it's it's in some ways it's the same like two best friends and the wife and the cheating thing from like El Fantasma del Convento, right? It's like that setup. And we're also in a monastery. Like, it's the same pieces. We're just putting them together. together. differently. Yeah. But whereas El Fantasma del Convento had, like, a really spooky ghost story in it, like, this is straight. This is just a straight drama. The thing that makes it not uh, standard is the cinematography and the set design and, like, the, the cinematic qualities of it, which are definitely expressionist. But as I said a lot of times back in our 1920s days... Like, not all expressionism is horror. They get mm-hmm. conflated a lot because the most famous expressionist things were horror, but they aren't necessarily the same. And for me, the only moment in this movie that's really, like, that you can point to very easily and be like, that's horror, is at the end when Javier is hallucinating and all the monks are in the super creepy masks and they're coming at him and there's a lot of cinematic stuff there that's very, like, creepy. But... To me, that's still just expressionism, right? Because expressionism is about, like, literalizing the protagonist's... Psychological wor- state. Yeah, into the visuals of the story. Um, but there's nothing really... Like, there's, there's stuff in this story where the characters are horrified, right? The characters are horrified by what they've done and by their guilt and stuff like that. But there's nothing, like, scary about this movie. There, this movie doesn't really for me at least, uh, seem to be placing horror into the audience. The horror is within, like, the, the characters are horrified, but the audience, I think, for us, this movie plays more like tragedy. You know, that kind of, you know, the, 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 your Shakespeare or, or Greek styles tragedies that are about, like, mis- oh, I didn't know the whole picture when I acted kind of thing. Yeah, I, I definitely see where you're coming from with tragedy. I... I have a theory as to why this could be considered horror. Okay. Um, and I'll get there in a minute, but I do want to acknowledge that, like, yeah, this movie definitely gets lumped in to overarching horror. Because if it is horror, it's very tame. Mm. I'll put it that way. Um, but it gets lumped in with more extreme horror because of its expressionism. So I'm totally with you for that. I wanted to ask you... Mm-hmm. So this is, like, a tough thing to ask because we're both well I'm agnostic you're atheist yeah but like I'm baptized Anglican you're baptized Roman Catholic or something no god no uh Romanian Orthodox there we go but in any case neither of us are Catholic right and in my googling I couldn't figure out just like a how important is absolution Mm. like that's that's like a big thing right because that's like Cool, your soul will enter heaven, mm-hmm. correct? Well, so I feel like there's a lot of different ideas in play here. The, theoretically, like, again, as you said, I'm not Catholic, um, but to the best of my understanding, like, you need to be baptized. That's like your step one for getting into heaven, because that's going to wash you clean of, like, original sin or whatever you had before, like, depending on what age you got baptized. Yeah. Um, you need those last rites from a priest, and certainly you need all your sins to have, like, been confessed, right? Like, Catholics do confession, and absolution is the priest after your confession being like, you are forgiven. If your sins aren't forgiven, from what I understand, you are 
not going to heaven. However, um, and here's this is where my knowledge of the theology gets a little um, foggier, and I think it's also because there's been a lot of theological debate over this over the years, a lot of which is because the whole, like, afterlife, heaven, hell, purgatory, are, you know, souls in heaven alive right now, or are, is, the, is soul sleep a thing? Do you not go to heaven until the last judgment? All this stuff. None of this is really in the Bible. The Bible doesn't sit down and say, here's how this works. It just kind of vaguely references some stuff, and then everyone's been arguing about it for 2,000 years, right? So, to to say what my best understanding of this is... My best understanding would be, basically, to go to hell, like, you had to commit, like, what they call, like, a mortal sin, like, like one of the seven deadly sins, whereas I feel like the idea was anything else would just sort of land you in purgatory, and you just sit in purgatory waiting for judgment, uh, waiting for judgment day, and then you'll get sorted into one or the other, and that was what the whole thing with um, indulgences in the church was. It was supposed to be like you were paying to speed up someone's time in purgatory so they could get to heaven sooner. If I'm... That, that's just like the busy day at the DMV. You know, you're just sitting there with your ticket forever. <laughs> yeah, and indulgences were, you know, the DLC of Catholicism, where it was like extra... <laughs> or not the DLC, but like the pay-to-win like sure, stuff. Sure, sure. Um, it's funny that you mentioned that, because when I Google searched, how big of a deal is absolution? Like, I literally typed that. And results for of a franchise called Hitman. Yeah, Hitman Absolution, the game. Yeah, for sure. Only that came up, and I had to like rephrase it to get specifically <laughs> Catholic results. Sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, if I'm if I'm off base on any of this, like please let me know um, because I'm just saying this off the cuff to Sarah in the moment. I have had no time to look this up. <laughs> like Sarah looked shit up, but, but I did not. But very briefly. Um, because I couldn't find... Okay, here's the thing. What I could find was a Wikipedia page, mm -hmm. a few of them, and also it was, like, way more in-depth than what I needed. Yeah. Like, like down to, like, you know, what Russian Catholicism is versus, like, Yeah, every, everyone fucking... Yeah, and it, it was exactly. just, like, I, I don't even know. And the other things I got were, like, oh, this is, um, like, a, a, a pastor's personal blog of where he writes about... Catholicism or whatever. Um, yeah, that was one thing of, like, how big of a deal is absolution? Like, mm -hmm. it, it's kind of a big deal. The other thing that kind of came up as part of this question and, and right. research... Is it horror question? We're getting back to that. We just... We went so many layers deep, I'm just trying to, like, oh, we, resurface. We still deep. Okay, we still we deep. still deep. Okay. Um, how important is absolution... Like... In terms of hierarchy of, like, importance, what, like, what does confession do, right? Confession is, like, you're telling the dude about your sins, and then the absolution is him being like, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, so there's a few different parts to this, right? Because there's the priest's absolution where he forgives you for your sins. But oftentimes there's also penance, right? Where you you know, are, that's when, you know, the, 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 the guy getting your confession, the priest says like, oh, say 20 Hail Marys or something yeah, like that, yeah. right? Then you do that penance. That's like paying for your sins. And both of these characters talk about how they've come to this monastery as like a form of penance, but they weren't like officially doing it because they didn't tell anyone about like the thing, right? It, like this is like, Doing penance without doing confession is like going into county jail by yourself and just sitting there when no one's, like, <laughs> sentenced you. It's like if you get arrested for murder at that point, the judge isn't going to be like, well, you already sat in jail for 24 years, so I guess I'm only going to sentence you for the one year you would have had left. Like, no, you're still, like, it's it's not a great idea. Like, you have to do confession first. But the most important part is is the priest absolves you. You You doing confession doesn't do anything really until you get that second part, mm -hmm. because it's the priest who's, you know, imbued with the Holy Spirit and the power to forgive sins and stuff like that, right? So, side question. This is neither here nor there. It's kind of here, but this is more just an academic curiosity. Um, does the priest have to say, you're absolved? Or is it just like, because here's the thing. I'm, I'm off topic now about my sure. question about whether this That's is horror or not. Yeah. But let's let's, um, let's dive in. Yeah, let's dive into Catholicism. We can wrap this up in an hour. 
Um, Let's solve all <laughs> religious problems on this episode of our horror movie podcast. So, I, I wonder, so the prior is like, okay, Juan, whatever, and we don't, he, he doesn't, I, I don't think he says, like, you're absolved or whatever. He just kind of pats his head mm-hmm. and gets up and goes back to Javier's. Was he heading back there to be like, cool, I absolve you? Oh, how and much it, does intent matter versus actually well, saying it? like verbalizing it because here's the thing about rituals and this is all my academic stuff coming up if you if you're at the altar and at a wedding uh-huh. and your intent is like i'm marrying this person right but you don't say i do you're not married yeah yeah no absolutely so, like, is that the same thing yes here? no absolutely the priest has to say the words right like they're magic words like you, you shouldn't call them that but that's what they are like this is part of why like like, you asked, like, what words exactly he has to say, and it's going to be different depending on where you are. Because one of the reasons I feel like... So in, in the 60s, um, the Catholic Church said, like, hey, you don't have to do rites in Latin anymore. Um, you can do them in the, uh, like, the vulgar tongue of wherever you are. Which, like, Latin versus vulgar tongue is, like, a big... Was, for a long time, like, a big Catholic versus Protestant kind of split because Protestant churches you know, the congregations felt like they were much more on par with the priest, like less separated, less... Closer de- to God. Yeah, less, less. you know, there was less hierarchy there because the uh, congregation could read the Bible. It was in their own language and they could understand what the fuck the priest was saying and so on. Um, and the, when the Catholic Church got rid of the Latin rites, I feel like part of it was modernization. But I feel like the other part of it was so few people knew Latin by this point that the Latin words themselves had taken on kind of the air of like magic words right like fucking jk rowling uses just straight up latin as the magic words in harry potter because yeah there's that feeling like you know when you go and you watch the movie the exorcist and like he's saying latin stuff while like doing hand gestures and things like it seems like some magic shit when really like he's just saying normal things in latin right like latin's a language it just means things and so <laughs> it's it, like, cause it's not, you know what I mean? It's not abracadabra. It's just a language. It means things. What I'm trying to say is like, it's not like abracadabra alakazam. It's not a bunch of like made up sounds. It's, it's real words that, yeah. Yeah. And so you, but you do, you do have to say the words. Um, and yeah, all this talk of like, you know, how important is that? Like my best guess would be that without absolution, uh, Javi is going to end up in purgatory at best right he's definitely not going to heaven but i'm not sure if he's going to hell because like all he really like javier all javier really did was attack a dude twice twice well how justified was he right like juan's whole story is trying to give this justification but juan pulled the trigger like right like juan brought a gun with him yeah why does he have a gun in that scene yeah no it's it's yeah that's that's something Um, um yeah dramatic necessity but it certainly doesn't make like sense so what i'm trying to get across is these questions about the mechanics of this are one of those aspects where you know when you grow up in the western world where christianity is kind of almost like an assumed thing you're just in the soup of it yeah but like you think you know how it works you it seems really clear until you ask literally any questions and then depending on who you ask you'll get Five thousand different answers, and you very quickly find out why there's like a million different flavors of Christian. Because that's why there there isn't an answer. Everyone has a different opinion on what the answer is. Yeah, so that's why my quick googling didn't super help. But one thing that that kind of ties this back into is this movie horror. Yes, <laughs> right. To bring it back to you know the movie as as ranking every horror movie ever made. So I couldn't find statistics specifically on Mexico 1934. But in 1910, 91% of Mexico was Catholic. Oh yeah, Mexico is like historically, traditionally, you know, probably even up to this day, a very Catholic majority country. 2010, 85%. Yeah, that number did not go down much, huh? No. All of this is to say, and I wanted to bring statistics in because I didn't want just, like... You didn't want to feel like you were generalizing and painting with a broad brush. And and assuming things, because I... We're, like, we're pretty far from Mexico, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, I wonder, like, if this is an ineffective horror on us because we aren't Catholic. Right, yeah. Your, your central question that you've been trying to get to is, is this horror if you believe in the soul? Yeah. Which, well, like, I mean, like, I believe in the no, soul, but, but... Yeah, you get what I'm saying, yeah, I'm right? Yeah, I'm just... I'm just nitpicking. <laughs> it's... You're sort of... What you're trying to do is use my vampire argument on me. Because, like... Am ult- I? Yeah, because ultimately, like, that was my big thing when we talked about vampire, and I was trying to explain why vampire was scary, as opposed to just, like, a collection of weird nonsense thrown together. <laughs> I was making this argument about, you know, the soul and how the fear in vampire is the fear of losing your soul and things like that. And that kind of sat, you know, you, you were like, oh, that's a good argument. Okay, cool. And we reevaluated Vampire as being like a Catholic movie as opposed to initially looking at it as just like a weird indie art movie, right? Um, so, yeah, I think this is a totally valid argument to bring up. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes it horror because the focus feels like it's not on that for so much of the movie. Yeah, um, this movie kind of suffers from a bit of the problems that La Llorona suffered from of, like, a bit too long of the flashbacks. Yeah, the, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, what was, what's the point of this movie? Like, not the point in terms of the story, what was the point of making this movie? Because part of me looks at this and says, okay, the point of this movie is to do this double narrative thing, where we have this incident between these two men, and if you see it from this guy's side, he's in the right. And you see it from this other guy's side, he's in the right. And if that's the case, that, you know, Oro is trying to explore telling these dual narratives and how that can be interesting in a film, is the monastery stuff then just, you know, is the frame story just there to facilitate that? Is it just there for an excuse for the other thing? Now, I kind of want to say no because the ending is so intense and so unique that it feels like maybe the monastery stuff isn't just there to facilitate the rest of the story. But we are certainly in those narratives for a much longer time. I mean, even if you compare this to Rashomon, right? Rashomon has the stuff with the people at the gate uh, into the city. It has the trial stuff. And we're cutting back, I feel, to the present a lot more in Rashomon than we're spending in the scene in the Glade, Right. Rashomon is flashbacks, this is framing device, you know, in terms of focus and narrative. And even in the context of the framing device, certainly Javier feels guilt. Because that's what, you know, this hallucination of these, you know, crazy masked monks coming at him seems to represent. And certainly Juan wants Javier's forgiveness. But, like, we don't... I feel like... I don't know if, like, that's what's on Javier's mind, his absolution. I think he just maybe feels guilty, or we don't really know. Like, the movie keeps that really ambiguous at the end. And I I respect that choice, but unfortunately it makes the story a bit less clear for me because if Javier was at the end, like, begging for absolution and then he just doesn't get it in time, that's horror. But he was asking for absolution. But wait, what I'm trying to say is, like, way earlier at the start of the movie, right? It's not emphasized for you in that moment it's like you know it's like he if he was dying of thirst and at the start of the movie he asked for a glass of water and then at the end of the movie he dies it feels really disconnected as opposed sure. to if it's right there you mm-hmm. know i guess like part of the question we have to answer then in terms of is this horror is the fact that we don't get an answer from javier before he dies is that supposed to be tragic? Or is that supposed to be horrifying that it's like he almost was saved, but now he's not? Yeah, well, and the other thing we have to sort of figure out then is, like, who's the focus on? Like, is our focus on Juan and, like, oh, Juan will never know if Javier had forgiven him or not? Or is our focus on Javier and, like, oh, Javier will never get his dot 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 absolution dot 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 revenge we don't know like that's the other thing too is like i feel like it's only horrific if you read it from the context of javier wants to be forgiven and doesn't get it in time and i feel like the only way to read it from that context is you have to assume that the movie is more about javier than it is about juan which i feel is hard to do 
because it's so evenly split. And also you have to assume that he's going forward to say, I forgive you, not going forward to, like, kill Juan. And because both of those parts of that question are left ambiguous, like, it's hard to say, you know, oh, definitively the theme is this. Well, what's your evidence? Oh, these two things that are completely ambiguous. Yeah. Right? Like, that's really hard to make an argument by, is my, my, my problem with that. You have to make a lot of assumptions to get there. Now, that's not saying it's wrong. It's just that there's no way to prove those assumptions. Yeah. So kind of where I was going with all this is um, I looked up other 1934 movies mm-hmm. um, to get a, to reorient myself about what horror looked like at that time. Yeah, for sure. In order of like highest on the list to lowest, there's The Black Cat at right. number five. Yeah, that's something. Yeah, that's definitely horror compared to this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Black Cat is a fucked up movie. Oh, it's so good. Then we have El Phantasma at 28. Mm -hmm. I think comparing these two, it would be very easy to be like, El Phantasma's horror. Dos Monjes is tragedy. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, they're so similar, it's easier to be like, it's easier to see that that one's horror. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's like, you can be forgiven for, like, not being able to tell the difference between Coke and Pepsi. But I feel like if you drink both back to back, you'll you'll notice those differences more. Yeah, yeah. And then the next one that I wanted to bring up is Black Moon at number 66. Uh, yeah, Black Moon. Black Moon, the, the movie where the horror is... Black people. Mm-hmm. And we, we were like, yeah, this is horror if you're a racist... Right, so you're trying to figure out, is this horror if you're a Catholic? Yeah. And what's tough is, Black Moon, the intent was definitely horror. Yeah. That question's still ambiguous with Dos Monjes. Yeah, I... (sighs) All I can say for sure is that the intent was for it to be expressionist. Yes, definitely expressionist. And certainly the ending is definitely very intense. My thing is, you know, there's four different ways you can read this movie, okay? The movie's about Juan, and Javier wants to kill him. The movie's about Juan, and Javier wants to forgive him. The movie's about Javier, and Javier wants to kill Juan. The movie is about Javier, and Javier wants to forgive Juan. Only in one of those four does that make the movie horror. In the other three, that makes it tragedy. So I think the math tells me it's tragedy, as does the fact that, like, the rest of the movie isn't scary, right? The rest of the movie is just a love triangle told from two different points of view that has a murder at the end, right? Mm -hmm. Like, El Phantasma had fucking ghosts in it and shit. Yeah, the devil howling out the windows. And, like, yeah, like, uh, mummies coming to life and crap, right? Like, these are the same pieces being put together in a different genre. It's still very creepy at times, and it definitely has that expressionist vibe. But I, I come down on this isn't horror because I don't think the goal of this movie was to scare anyone. I don't think this movie's trying to put fear into you or be scary. Um, I get what you're saying about like the Catholicism and, and does that make it horrifying or whatever. I think that even if that's true, that reading of the movie, I think this still is tragedy, not horror. Because I don't think, if I was Catholic, I don't know if I would walk away from this being like, like, and then he didn't get his sins absolved! The <laughs> horror! You know what I mean? Like, I yeah, feel like it's, it's still... That's a bit weird, eh? Like, I feel like that still reads as tragedy, right? It's like, and then, just at the moment when he could have been forgiven, he died. How tragic, right? Like, yeah. it, that's how it reads to me. Okay, cool. I did want to make... I get the sense we're wrapping up, and I get where we're going. I did want to say one last thing. It's about the way the colors switch between the two. Mm -hmm. How one's dressed in black and the other's dressed in white, and then when you get the other guy's story, it switches. So I think, like, the really obvious way to read that is, you know, the guy telling... You see yourself as the good guy. Exactly. Um, However, I did just want to bring up this point, uh, and this isn't mine. This is from Will Laughlin of BrainEater.com, who had this to say, but he theorizes that, um, so there's a scene that plays in both stories that is not plot related at all. 
it's just part of like montages of the three characters spending time together, but it's the only one that gets repeated, and it's of Javier and Juan playing chess mm-hmm. with each other. And what uh, is pointed out on BrainyEar.com is that in chess, the white player moves first, and if you want to know, you know, who's in the right vis-a-vis Anita, the key question kind of becomes who had her first, as it were, who move, who made a move first, you mm-hmm. know, and from Javier's point of view, he made a move first and Juan came in on his girl, and from Juan's point of view, like, he and Anita were already together when Javier came in. So that was just something I wanted to quickly bring up, uh, just because I thought that was an interesting point that was brought up by uh, that particular critic. Just, just, uh, one last note, um, when we're going through the montage of, like, the three of them together, and it's Javier's perspective, mm-hmm. it's, like, three chums hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's just, like, some friends hanging out. It's great. It's me and my girlfriend and my best friend. We have so much fun together. Ha, 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 Yeah, ha, ha. isn't this great? And when it's from Juan's perspective, during the chess scene, um, it's different, and Anita is sitting closer to Juan... And she chides Javier for making, like, a bad move. Yeah. And, like, changes it for him. And, like, like yeah. And Juan says, ah, I see I'm playing chess with you. Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of cool little details. Like, uh, the differences between the two versions of the stories, especially in scenes that are the same, are very cool. Like, this is a good movie, I think. Like, this is a very yeah. cool movie. I can see why this movie's gotten this, like critical appraisal over the years. I can also see why it maybe wouldn't have done well in 1934. I think there's a lot of elements to this that speak better to an audience that's, you know, more versed in postmodernism and and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it feels like a very modern movie. Mm -hmm. And like one of my, like you're saying in these montage scenes, like in the Juan versions, it's like Javier playing his piano while Juan and Anita like look at each other like they're just eye-fucking, right? Like... Yeah, it's definitely very cool. So I think we're then both agreed that this is not horror, and thus we'll be going on the miscellaneous list. Yeah. Like I said, I'm glad we watched it, because I think this is a director we're going to be coming back to um, again in the future. And also, it was a a cool contrast to see with El Phantasma. And like you said, sort of brought out the horror in El Phantasma more clearly. Yeah. And I think this is a great example for why not all expressionist movies are horror. Yes. Like, El Rauna is, is another kind of example, but that movie isn't even fully expressionist. Yeah, so. that, that's just a movie. El Rauna is just an example for why all movies with Paul Wigner aren't horror. Yeah, yeah, very fair. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I, I would love to hear from any Catholic listeners, if you watch this movie and you're actually like... No, really, um, for someone who's Catholic, this is very scary. I would love to hear from you. Or, if any of the stuff that I said out of my ass was wrong and bad and offensive, please tell me, because uh, heaven knows that I have just jumped on Benito Serino's ass and told him about all the times he was accidentally wrong on Apocrypals and gone, well, actually. So I feel like my Twilight Zone ironic fate should be to have someone else contact me and tell me, well, actually. Yeah, so you can contact us at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com through our ask box, as well as over email, screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. And just a quick plug for Apocrypals, um, Ben, do you want to tell our, our listeners about it, since we just had a whole episode about Catholicism? Yeah, um, Apocrypals is the podcast by comic book writer and critic Chris Sims, and comic book writer and classicist, linguist, literature luminary Benito <laughs> Serino. The a modern man's philosopher, Benito Serino. They do it together. Comes out every Sunday, and the premise is it's two non-believers going through the Bible and trying not to be jerks about it. It's a really fun show. Uh, I highly recommend you check it out if you have not done so already. Our show, uh, if this is your first time listening to it and you want to continue listening to it, uh, this episode didn't turn you off. Our show comes out every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Uh, if you do enjoy the show, we would love it if you could leave a rating or a review on 
one of those services if it allows them. Uh, another great way you can help us out is just by sharing the show with your friends on various social media platforms or in real life. Uh, we are just through with a very big Halloween season for us, uh, and we would love to see our listenership continue to grow. October was a record-setting month for us. We had, I want to say it's like 15% of all of our listens over the whole course of the show were in October of this year. Thank you so much, everyone. It's, like, so cool. Another way you can help us out if you enjoy the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast. As we mentioned at the start of the show, patrons get all kinds of fun bonuses. Uh, all patrons can still find Sarah's music that she put up over October, none of that's going anywhere. Um, our Patreon content isn't like timed or anything. One dollar patrons will also get a special shout out on air. Uh, Five dollar patrons get access to weekly bonus audio. Ten dollar patrons get access to monthly horror short fiction, and of course, each tier gets access to what the lower tiers got as well. Obviously, <laughs> uh, so that's Patreon.com/slash Scream Scene Podcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week we are back into the regular flow of the time stream. 1941? Uh, yes. Uh, with Bela Lugosi Ooh. in Invisible Ghost for monogram pictures. Okay, cool. Uh, will we be able to see it? It's invisible. My other thing is, like, aren't, like, invisible ghosts, like, aren't most ghosts, like, No, because you can have black figures, you can have spectral orbs. I know about ghosts, Ben. Okay. I guess you have been watching Ghost Wars. How are the Ghost Wars going, by the way? Are we winning? Yes. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear it. We should have, like, newsreels. (laughs) News from the Ghost Wars front! Alright, well, until then... We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye!